What's up, TRP? Welcome to week four of our sermon series on the story of Joseph. We're going to be looking at Genesis 39 today, and I'm just going to read it and insert a little bit of commentary. Okay, okay. A lot, a lot of bit of commentary, but that'll be okay. All right. This is Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse one. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, let's just flash back real quick. If you happen to have stumbled upon this video without hearing the first three weeks, uh, just real quick flashback for you to bring you up to speed. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. And the author of Genesis is very clear. They hate him. He was the favored son of their father, and they couldn't handle it, so they sold him to a group of caravanners heading south to Egypt. And this picks up the story. Last week in Genesis 38, the author seemed to to go on a little bit of a side tangent, talking about one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, and his family. Uh, And now he's bringing us back to the Joseph narrative. If you need to pause here and go back to week three, there's a lot of really cool uh, literary ties between the story of Judah and Tamar and what is going on with Joseph. But for now, you'll be okay just knowing that Joseph has been sold into Egyptian slavery. And this is where the story picks up. Verse two, it says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. The story here uh, in some English translations will refer to Potiphar again by name. In the Hebrew, it only occurs in the first verse uh, when he has been sold to Potiphar. The rest of the time, it just refers to him as he or his master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Note all of the uses of the masculine pronoun. He put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him, that's Joseph, in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything he had, both in the house and in the field, so he left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Some uh, interpreters think that there's a bit of ambiguity here, or maybe better, a bit of sexual innuendo here. Uh, That might be reading in a a little bit too much to the story. And now we get this detail about Joseph. In the past, we've already learned that Joseph is a punk kid. His brothers hate him. His dad loves him. He's got this ornamented coat that gets him in a little bit of trouble and becomes the sign of his own death in the eyes of his father. And now we learn that Joseph was, quote, well-built and handsome. Okay, I'm a huge nerd, so I've been doing a lot of research on Joseph's good looks. Uh, The phrases that are used here to describe Joseph, uh, they were well-built and handsome. That's the same phrases that are used to describe his mom. Of course, we would translate them in different terms, but it's the same phraseology used to describe Rachel in Genesis 29. They were both 
comely in features and comely to look at, or handsome in body and handsome in look, or attractive in body and attractive in look, however you want to interpret that here for Joseph and Rachel. Either way, there's there's a lot of fun Jewish interpretive traditions about how good, how good Joseph looks. As it appears here in this story, the description is is clearly used to justify Potiphar's wife's reaction. Note, Potiphar's wife does not have a name at any point in this story. She is only known as Potiphar's wife. Now, in the Genesis text, it says, and after a while, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. In the Hebrew text, this is just two words, shikva imi. I'm going to self-edit there a little bit. I was going to say you could tuck those words away if you want husbands and wives, whatever, spouses. I would say that you could tuck those away, but okay. Uh, These are the first two words that she speaks to Joseph as recorded in the Bible. One scholar, Robert Alter, writes, the extraordinary bluntness of this sexual imperative, shikva imi, come to bed with me, sleep with me, it makes it one of the most striking instances of revelatory initial dialogue in the Bible. It's, it's intense. And it's all because Joseph was so hot, so incredibly hot. Potiphar's wife just couldn't handle it. She needed him in her life in that way. A later Jewish interpreter, Philo of Alexandria, he's actually a pretty important Jewish interpreter, says this, that she was driven mad by his handsomeness. I'm going to channel my inner squints Polydorus here from the beautiful and extraordinary movie, The Sandlot, who says very eloquently of his all-time crush, Wendy Peffercorn. He says, I've been coming here to this pool every summer of my adult life. He's 12, maybe 13. And every summer, she's oiling and lotioning and lotioning and oiling. I can't take it anymore! Other Jewish traditions uh, extended the scope of the effects of Joseph's good looks so that they envision young women climbing walls just to get a glimpse of him. And in this vein, one text, which is, which is a much later retelling of Joseph's life, it says, All the wives and daughters of noblemen and satraps of the whole land of Egypt, when they saw Joseph, they suffered badly because of his beauty. One more tradition, just to prove the point, and just because I find this one absolutely hilarious. Uh, the Quran retells the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, too, and it's notably different. However, this detail about Joseph's extreme attractiveness is the same. In its retelling, Potiphar's wife hears that the women of the town suspect that she's trying to sleep with Joseph. So she invites them over for a banquet, and then she tells Joseph to to come on out, to parade himself before all of the, the town's women. And it says, and when they saw him, they marveled at him and they said, good God, this is not a human. This must be a precious angel. And you can almost just envision Potiphar's wife saying, see, see, I told you, blame me. Go ahead, blame me. Shikva in me, right? Right? So yeah, 
Joseph was well-built and handsome. And this description is used to set up the next plot point in the story, which is Potiphar's wife saying, come to bed with me. Now, my doctoral supervisor, John Goldengate, makes a, a pretty good point here because we as Western readers of the Bible, we're, we're sort of trained to think of Potiphar's wife's desire here as sex for sex own sake. But this might be a little too much of a modern reading in to the story. Because in the ancient world, sex for sex's sake may have been less likely of an option. Uh, remember, they had no birth control, and perhaps her desire was tied up with having a baby of her own. Now, this, this suggestion is made all the more intriguing when we note how Potiphar is introduced in the story. And again, this depends on our knowledge of Hebrew, but lucky for you, I'm going to let you in on some of the secrets here. He is introduced as a cerise, which in our passage, absolutely no questions about it, definitely means that he was an official of uh, Pharaoh, okay? But the term cerise also can mean eunuch, which is just a, a deliciously ambiguous use of the term for later readers who might have just snuck a wry smile to the people they were reading with and said, okay, it makes sense why she's all over Joseph here, all right? Now, also, I should say that this isn't to say that sex for sex's own sake was off the table even in the ancient world. There, um, we have the Song of Songs if we want to look at that idea. That was very much sex for sex's own sake. But there are layers to this ancient story that are worth tending to. And Potiphar's wife here appears to be using her status for her own ends, whatever they might be, uh, sexual desire or baby making, who knows, but she is attempting to use her own status and influence over Joseph to get what it is that she wants from him. And Joseph refuses here. Remember, he's 19, maybe 20. He's, he's a young man, so this is really unexpected. And Jewish interpreters, again, they extrapolate on this detail of Joseph uh, continually refusing her advances. Not only did he refuse, they say, they actually begin to surmise that he wasn't even tempted. He never even thought about it because he is so chaste and such a model of faithfulness to the divine. In contrast, in fact, to her two-word commands to, to sleep with her, Joseph launches into this lengthy dialogue. He says, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has, has been entrusted to me. Uh, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you because, because you're his wife. See, see, you're his wife. And, and how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Okay, right? Okay. So Joseph, like you can play this up a bit, 19 year old kid, here's this command, it's shikva emi, and it's very forthcoming, and he goes into this long diatribe. Verse 10 says, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day after day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. It, it is more literally translated, he refused to lay beside 
her or to even be with her. And some people think that she's kind of loosening up the demand here, going from shikva imi, the, this come have sex with me, to come on, just 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 lay beside me. Come on, just a little, just just be the big spoon. Come on, let's just snuggle a little bit, right? Let's just do that. And he keeps uh, shirking her advances. Verse 11, it says, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties. I should note here that there's some Jewish interpretation where they see this as as Joseph's uh, armor beginning to crumble a bit. They wonder what exactly were his duties or what uh, in the Hebrew it says to do his work. What was that work? Is it sexual in nature? I mean, that seems to be a reading in. There is a fun bit though here where they think that Joseph wants to sleep with her, and the only thing that saved him from doing that was at the very last moment, an image of his dad popped into his head, which is a bit of a mood killer, okay? Uh, But it says here that he goes into the house, he's trying to do his work, nobody else is there, and this sets up Potiphar's wife for what she's about to, the, the, the trap that she has set for Joseph. None of the household servants were inside, and Potiphar's wife caught him by the cloak. Joseph does not have good luck when it comes to garments. Remember his ornamented coat, his his long sleeve coat, his ankle length coat that becomes the object that the brothers use to um, convince their dad that he's dead. And now she's seizing him by his his cloak. It's not just she's catching him by his cloak, but she's seizing it. Um, the word here for garment is begged. It's pretty ambiguous what it is. It could be an outer cloak. It could according to some people, be like a a linen garment? Is that a thing? Loincloth? Like underwear? Uh, So she's grabbing him by something. Um, And then she says, come to bed with me, shikva imi. She goes back to her original command, but he left whatever it is, his his beged, his, his garment in her hand, important, in her hand because she seized him and he runs out of the house. Now, just to help you get a mental image here, uh, we don't exactly know what this garment refers to, uh, but again, Robert Alter says Joseph would be naked or nearly naked when he runs off leaving the garment behind in her grasping hand. Okay, so you shouldn't get an image of that. Let's be pure here, but you can catch the scene of young Joseph running out of the house and maybe some other onlookers seeing him and he's in his underwear or less than, uh, and he's just kind of running, running off. Now, when she sees this, uh, Potiphar's wife seizes it as an opportunity uh, to set the trap for Joseph. Verse 13, it says, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants and she says, look, this Hebrew, this is most likely meant as a slur of of some sort. Um, It's certainly a, a term that's meant to differentiate Joseph from the Egyptians here. It says, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. She's also throwing her husband under the bus here a little bit as the one who has procured Joseph and placed him in the house in a, in a seat of prominence. He came in here to sleep with me, she says, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me. Woo! Crafty. She's crafty because no longer is the cloak in her hand. It's now beside her. There's been this change here. He left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. 
and she kept his cloak beside her, again, until his, his master came home. It's weird how he, they're referring to Potiphar here, not as her husband, but as Joseph's master, until he comes home, the one who is to blame for all of this. Again, uh, Joseph and his garments, this is not a good thing. Lies are typically created around this, this guy's clothes, and it's happening to him again by Potiphar's wife. So Potiphar comes back and she begins to tell this story, which changes a little bit again. That Hebrew slave, note, he's not any more just a a Hebrew, he's a Hebrew slave. That Hebrew slave that you brought came to me to, to make sport of me. Uh, a more literal interpretation of this would be the Hebrew servant that you brought to us came to me in order to play around with me. This, this verb is weird. Actually, this is the same verb that's used in the story of Isaac and Rebekah when they are traveling in foreign territory and Isaac says to her, come on, pretend to be my sister so that nobody kills me because you my beautiful bride, you are so beautiful that nobody can handle how beautiful you are. And they're just going to want to take you and and sleep with you. So when they go into this foreign place, uh, they create this narrative where Rebecca is the sister of Isaac. But then later on, the king sees them fooling around, um, playing around. Uh, It's actually the same verb um, for his, his own name, I believe, Yitzhak check me on that. Uh, but either way, they, it's, it's come, it, it comes out that they are husband and wife because they're fooling around. And it's the same verb that's used here that you've brought this servant to, to fool around with me. But as soon, she says, as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me again, not in her hand. She didn't seize the cloak because she was so, um, angsty about sleeping with this kid. Uh, it, it actually says that he left his cloak beside her, and then he ran out of the house. Verse 19, when his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. This is strange. This is a strange detail because you would expect that someone who attempts to rape the wife of his master would be executed, but he's not. He's placed into the kind of this, this might be a reading in, but it seems like a, a, a swanky sort of upper level uh, prison house where Joseph is with all of the other upper level um, people who are being punished. We'll see how that unfolds in the next chapter. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Uh, The warden, it says, paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is very familiar to the beginning of the story where the people around Joseph outside that can just see this, can see that the Lord is with him, which is strange because the people who notice this are Egyptian. They're they're foreigners who don't know Yahweh, but can see the evidence of Yahweh in Joseph's life. 
As we have seen throughout our series on Joseph, the author or authors or editors of, of Genesis are, are brilliant storytellers. They're often including subtle hints of foreshadowing where the story is going to go or important and delicate literary ties that connect the narrative that they're telling with other uh, portions of the story, as we saw last week. Um, they also include overt theological commentary, sometimes, not a whole lot, but sometimes, like when the, the dreams are, are happening and Joseph uh, begins to see that one, at one point in his life he will be ruling over his brothers. Um, I would call that overt theological commentary, even though uh, God is not mentioned in that passage. Uh, but here we have Yahweh's presence with Joseph, and it's just this kind of hammered into us as readers that this is why all of this is happening. And, and in this story, uh, we just get good, engaging, and dramatic plot development. And this is something that occurs all throughout the Joseph story. On any reading, this story in Genesis 39, it's just good literature. It's a, it's a fascinating story that if you've never heard it before, you're kind of sitting on the edge of your seat wondering what is going on. We've got high stakes in this story. We've got surprising success of a slave followed by the equally surprising fall from grace. We have intrigue and accusation. We've got sexiness. We've got all sorts of um, things that are happening here. We've got wrongful punishment and also a surprisingly mild punishment for uh, the accusations that are leveled against this foreigner. I, I know that many of us were familiar with this story, but if we're able to enter into it, even for a moment, it just pulls us in. But what do we do with it? I, I just finished a great book last week. It's called Jesus and John Wayne. The subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Cobus Dumay. And toward the end of the book, she notes the uptick in conservative pastors preaching politically loaded sermons about the false accusations of Potiphar's wife and any other woman at any point in history. And they started preaching these around the time of the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. But clearly, that's not the point of this story. And I'd also add it's a gross and misogynistic approach to a much more nuanced discussion that's needed within the church about power dynamics and patriarchalism and the credibility of victims in our society. Sadly, the church has not uh, been hidden from sexual scandals in its uh, more recent past. And neither is this story about us in the sense that the takeaway is that we too should be like Joseph, faithful and chaste and willing to run from temptation. Gosh, if I had a quarter for every youth group message I heard about running from temptation like Joseph, I would have a few nickels or quarters, quarters. When we reduce the Bible to go and do what this person did, we are usually reducing the theological potency of the passage. But again, I, like many of you, have heard reductionistic takes on sexual purity for, for most of my life. Um, conversations, honest 
clear, non-reductionistic conversations about Christian sexual ethics, they definitely have their place. And in my opinion, they must move beyond the guilt and shame that has resulted from the purity culture of generations past. But starting from this passage is probably setting us up in the wrong direction for those conversations, those necessary conversations to take place. It's setting us up in the wrong direction. Rather, this story is making an overt theological claim that Yahweh was with Joseph. In the beginning, we learned that the Lord was with Joseph in Egyptian slavery so that he prospered. In fact, his Egyptian master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had given him success in everything that he did. And because of that, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. And then at the end of the story, again, we learned that while Joseph was in the prison, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the warden. It, similar to Joseph's rise in Potiphar's house, the warden Jordan sees the Lord's withness in Joseph's life and put Joseph in charge of all of those that were held in the prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention, it says, to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. From a literary perspective, the narrator's description of Yahweh's role in this story is noteworthy. Because Yahweh has not been named at any other point in this narrative. It was not named when we first meet Joseph, or when Joseph was put in a cistern by his brothers, or when Joseph was sold into slavery, and when his coat was sent home dipped in blood to convince his father that he was dead. Yahweh was not named in the story. Yahweh was not named in Genesis 38 either, in the story of Judah and Tamar, which we looked at last week. But in this chapter, Yahweh's name appears eight times. It's like the author is waving a huge flag saying, hey, hey, look, 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 you look, Yahweh is involved in this, readers. Pay attention to this. And after this chapter, the name of Yahweh will disappear yet again, only to be named one more time in a text that has nothing to do with, with Joseph at all uh, in Genesis 49. I believe it's in the blessing to Dan. Sadly, according to Golden Gay, Genesis does not offer any analysis of how Yahweh's being with someone makes things happen. But this is clearly what we are meant to consider from this passage. And I think it's what we often do consider when we contemplate our own lives. Perhaps we might even hear Paul in the back of our heads whispering, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But how and, and when and do we ever see it? And even from this story, does, does Joseph realize it? Because what we have are the people around Joseph seeing Yahweh working in his life while Joseph is in, ostensibly, the lowest of the low, the cistern that his brothers have just put him in, the, the caravan that is taking him to Egyptian slavery, um, being in Egyptian slavery, being falsely accused of, of rape, uh, going to prison, all of these moments, the author is saying, and Yahweh was with Joseph. But does Joseph know? And what do we know or what do we think when we find ourselves in those cisterns of our lives? 
when the people around us might see something that's happening, but we can't necessarily get on board with that. Within the church, we've seen a lot of really gross interpretations of what God is doing and what God is not doing. And in this story, what we have is God's witness with Joseph. At many points, it doesn't say that God is plotting and planning and, and orchestrating. It just says that God is with Joseph in the midst of these moments, even if Joseph doesn't understand it or recognize it. My hope over the next week or so is that we can uh, enter into this story and begin to wrestle with what it means that God is with us. As followers of Jesus, we have the very spirit of the risen Christ living within us at all times. There is withness that goes even beyond what Joseph was experiencing. But what does that mean? And how do we make sense of that when we are going through the difficulties that we face in the world? And what does that make us think of the God that we serve in the midst of those cistern moments? I don't have the easy answers for us here, but I would encourage you to consider this phrase, and the Lord was with Joseph. And I would encourage you to begin to turn that like a gem and see how the light reflects off of different aspects when you look at it in different ways. Mm -hmm.